Abolition. Abolition. Every single New Yorker should know that we still have slavery on the books. And every single New Yorker should have the opportunity to vote to remove that stain from our Constitution. So I am incredibly proud to stand here not only as a representative of many formerly incarcerated individuals, but as someone who taught in our correctional facilities, someone who had students that made driver's license plates for cents an hour, the best humans I've ever known. Today, we start the process to stand up for true justice in this state, to remove this original sin from our Constitution, and to allow New Yorkers to say we will end slavery in this state once and for all. I vote in the affirmative. Thank you, Mr. President. I'm on my money back. I'm down there drowning in your back. You got me on my knees praying for everything you lack. I ain't afraid of you. I'm just a victim of your fear. You cower in your tower praying that I'll disappear. I got another plan. Well, that requires me to stand on the stage and speak. So you know my I'm gonna be. And if you hear this song, if you ain't dead, just sing along. Say it's coming in there, brother. You tell me you belong. I got a list of demands. Written on the palm of my hands. I'm on my fist and you gonna know why I stand.
think that one of the reasons you have this vocal opposition to uh, to the content of what is being taught in our schools, uh, the so-called the opposition to so-called critical race theory, is precisely because as Americans learn more and more about the history of atrocities in the United States, an accurate history of those atrocities, they are more inclined to say that reparations for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery is an appropriate step that the nation ought to take. We, Max starting off swinging right away from the beginning of the show. He's telling you that he got a list of demands written on the palm of his hands. He balls his fist, and you're going to know where I stand. You just heard New York uh, State Senator Zelnor Y. Myrie on his June 6, 2023 testimony on New York abolition legislation, and that was followed by Saul Williams' list of demands, reparations, and it also included Sandy Darity on reparations. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcasts, I'm sorry, on all major streaming platforms and also now on Amazon Music. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Peace, Brother Yusuf. I'm here in Sumter, South Carolina at the Paul Comfy Abolitionist Center, hoping that the power don't go out from the rain that's out here. Mine just literally came back on a few minutes before we came on air. So I'm hoping the same thing. So in this pre-Juneteenth two-episode set, that's counting last week and this, so last week we were joined by the organizer of the National Juneteenth event in South Carolina, Juneteenth Jamil Basile Bradley, and now we'll be joined by one of the leading voices in reparations, Chris Lodson. Chris is a leading voice in slavery abolition, uh, slavery reparations, is also a slavery abolitionist, and we'll tell you more about him when he comes on to the program later on. But we want you to focus on these two topics because, these two topics would normally indicate a post-slavery society, but yet both of these organizers are slavery abolitionists, and we're bringing their unique perspectives that will help others gain an understanding of the issues surrounding modern slavery and a nation hell-bent on pushing a false narrative of full emancipation and absolute abolition. Can we settle reparations while slavery is still in practice and still legal? Well, tune in to find out. So before we jump into tonight's topic, Max, uh, your thoughts on the opening, and how was your week, brother? Uh, yeah, that opening uh, track was pretty pretty hot, man. I, I did a good mix on that with Brother Saul Williams, the legend. Um, it started out, as you know, with New York State Senator uh, Myrie talking about the bill passing through there, which made history in New York State, as a matter of right. fact. Uh, that was a uh, what did they describe it as? 
the No Slavery Act in New York Act became the first legislative chamber in the history of our state to say firmly that no person, regardless of their incarceration status, should ever be forced to work. So that was very powerful, and his whole testimony uh, was really, really very powerful. You should listen to it if you get a chance. And then, as you've seen at the end, we ended with reparations and some of the impediments to the understanding of it, as well as some of the things that are uh, showing that it's moving forward and gaining a lot of momentum. So we sandwiched <clears throat> list the demands right in between those two things, because that's what we're doing here today. We're a slavery abolitionist uh, group. Uh, we see this as modern-day slavery practiced through the 13th Amendment. And at the same time, we have groups all over the country that are moving towards reparations based on the end of slavery. And as we heard last week with Brother Jamal, uh, the perspective that they're using is that it's only a moment. Juneteenth is only a moment in history, and we should recognize the moment for what it was, but not as the end of slavery. And that was one of the things he was trying to express to his peers. I'm looking forward to hearing today's conversation with Chris um, in regards right. to reparations and how he juggles being a slavery abolitionist and being an expert in modern reparations. Now, as far as the week yeah. has been, mm-hmm. Lord of mercy. <laughs> right. You know, we're, we're very busy. Uh, you joined me on a number of these things, like state operations meeting we just had, where we had over a dozen states there, uh, as we normally do or more, uh, working together to get this job done through the Abolish Slavery National Network. And then also we had a strategy that we've been putting into play. This program today is a part of that strategy, is to get ahead of the narrative on Juneteenth. Because, you know, every Juneteenth it feels like as slavery abolitionists we take two steps backwards because now everybody's talking about how we're celebrating the end of slavery. And we're like, well, what the hell have we been doing all year long? You know, if slavery ended, how did we just abolish it in four states? Like, how did that happen? You know, so it's taking two steps back. So this year we decided to get ahead of the game and really start finding a way to educate people and to tie into the movements that are taking that power away from us on these false narratives to show that, uh, like, for instance, with Juneteenth, it's going to be here. It's not going anywhere. You know what I mean? People are going to be celebrating Juneteenth for years and years to come. And so we have to find a way to incorporate with that so that it doesn't overtake us. It empowers us. Right. Uh, so we had a couple of good events this week as well. Uh, we had uh, – the what do you call it that huh, i'm tongue-tied for a moment i was reading the text from my mom sorry about that uh Violet uh, slavery national network had a, uh, a great a event webinar. yesterday mm-hmm. yes webinar and it was uh you along with savannah eldridge and curtis davis and you all broke down uh why we're still doing this work what the work of the ASN is all about, and how it relates to Juneteenth. Uh, you you want to speak to a couple of highlights from that, Max? Uh, well, as you said, it was a very powerful presentation. We really uh, broke things down 
Uh, if you listen to this program, you listen to me, you already know what to expect. But add a notch to it because I want to make sure that this was a good presentation, you know. So between myself and Curtis Davis, uh, we were able to really bring home what the problems are and what the falsehoods are. Uh, and Savannah, uh, lead organizer for ASNN, uh, she was able to moderate for us and speak to it on a couple of occasions. I remember at one point, uh, Brother Curtis said, um, I imagine a world or a country where the police are trying to put themselves out of business, <laughs> you know, but that would be naive <laughs> because incarceration uh, creates an economy. And it right. does, you know, there is this incentive to incarcerate. Uh, which is some of the stuff that we talked about during the presentation. And, you know, even in the beginning, when Savannah played a clip of Article 3 that General Granger read uh, when he came into Texas with those Union soldiers behind him, um, Mm -hmm. and she also read the description of Juneteenth, both of those was like, man, how do I say this correctly? They were lies. (laughs) Like, none of that was true. Right. You know, General Order Number 3 only applied to the states in rebellion. It didn't apply to the border states or the northern states who got to keep their slaves. You know, and only it's like telling terrorists that guns are illegal now. You know, like, how is that helping? But nonetheless, that's what happened. They also talked about the emancipation, which we went in pretty deeply about. Um, and the uh, Juneteenth description, clearly right there on the website, the Juneteenth says it celebrates what? the end of slavery. Again, if slavery ended, what the hell are we doing here? But we tried to clarify for people that the end of slavery, what they mean is the end of chattel slavery, where you're born and die a slave, where your children are born and die as property. Um, Now, we don't have chattel slavery. You may not live and die as a slave, but you certainly can spend some time as one. And there's a lot of people spending time as enslaved people. Right, right now. Yeah. Right now. And Million. some of them are dying that way right now. Uh, Brother Dennis Fevo was talking to me about Tone, who was a guest on the program with us. Remember, he was saying he's mm-hmm. on a parole. He's still a property of the state, you know? And he, he's he been uh, really, I guess, ha- dealing with that that issue of him still being property of the state. But that's how it works. You can serve your time, you can get out, and then you can't vote. <laughs> you're like, what? why can't I vote? Because you're a felon. Well, what does that mean? It means you were subject to the 13th Amendment. That's what it means. Yep. Yep. Can't get housing, can't qualify for uh, financial aid for college. There's certain jobs you can't work. You know, there's certain state licenses you're not able to obtain. And this goes on for the rest of people's lives. You know, it just doesn't uh, end at the end of their uh, term of confinement because that that's defined by the amount of time the person spends in prison. And some people come home, have to do five years or ten years of parole, but it doesn't end there. Although their sentence ends when their term of confinement is up, which includes the parole, but for the rest of their lives, they have this scarlet letter on them, and they're able to be discriminated against for the rest of their lives. So yeah. that's the part that's always left out. And just going back to General Order 3, you know, I've read through it, 
and this particular section jumps out at me. It's short, so you mind if I read it real quick, Max? Because most people probably never heard of General Order Number Three. Um, sure, but let me just point out to our listeners that our guests will be joining us during the second hour. Uh, so you stuck with me and you sit yes. for the first hour. <laughs> All right, there you go. Right, so this is General Order Number Three that uh, General Granger, you know, probably sitting on his horse, pulls up and he read this to everyone and he said. The people are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And the connection heretofore existing between them become that between employer and hired labor. The freed are advised to remain at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. Now, to me, there's so much packed into those few sentences right there. You know, the first thing is they weren't allowed to leave. They were ordered to remain where they were, and they were forced to work. Right there, right in that order, because it tells them you're advised to remain in your homes and work for wages. Then it later says will not be supported in idleness. That means you got to be working. you got to be doing something. And what was one of the first black codes, Max? What was the – well, vagrancy. One of the first, vagrancy. One of the very first black codes was vagrancy. You got to have a job. If you can't prove that you have a job, you become re-enslaved through convict leasing. So it started there, and it's no and it's no question as to why. Within a matter of a few weeks, convict leasing began right on the heels of this general order right here. Yeah, there's a number of things that stood out for me in there. Uh, one of the things is how they identify the people that are affected by this. All slaves mm-hmm. are free. Now, just by saying that, you have created a whole class of people that, or a species possibly, or a race, or whatever you want to call them, but they're called slaves. And that's not who they were. Mm-hmm. These were people who were enslaved, which would turn right. uh, the responsibility of what has occurred here onto the slavers, not onto the slaves, but they were very careful to say all slaves rather than all people enslaved, because that points mm-hmm. directly at an enslaver, which is something that would be criminal. So, yeah, that's one of the things that stood out for me. I try my best not to use the word slaves to describe people because there's no such thing as a slave. There is an enslaved person. Um, and right. to put the responsibility of this crime on the right people. Also, at the end, as you said, uh, they were talking about the vagrancy, where they were being very serious. They said, uh, they're all formed that they will not be allowed to collect that military post. Like, don't come over here to the military spots. We're not protecting you. Uh, you got to make do with what, you, what you've got going on right there where you are. Uh, and that involves some kind of negotiation with the man who just said you were his property, like his dog or his cat, just the day before. So I... I Imagine how that conversation ended up. <laughs> wow. And then we know 
even the period of sharecropping where so many people tried to negotiate, but they didn't get paid. Many people worked for years on these same plantations and never got paid any money. Never so, got paid any wow. money, just like in the prisons today. Um, I was just looking at the uh, ACLU's report today about captive labor, and uh, mm-hmm. I looked at how much South Carolinians in prison get paid uh, zero for nearly all jobs. They're one of those states where you get nothing um, for your work except on a rare special occasion with outside contractors like they did with uh, it was the Victoria's Secret. Yeah, uh, Victoria's mm-hmm. Secret, I believe where the women's prison would make it 28 cents an hour to uh, do Victoria's Secret's underwear. But, yeah, just looking through that whole thing is very much about what you were just saying in Article uh, Article 3. So Pennsylvania, 0.19 cents an hour. Rhode Island, 50 cents an hour. South Dakota, 25 cents an hour. Tennessee, 17 cents. Texas, 0 to 0 an hour. You know, there's like seven states that you don't get nothing. Uh, And the work that you're doing is real hard work. Uh, You may not have been sentenced to hard labor like they do in Louisiana and Arkansas, but nonetheless, that hard labor certainly existed. Alabama, zero. Arkansas, zero. California, eight cents to 37 cents an hour. It's just crazy, man. (laughs) There's nothing coming out of this. I don't even know. You know, how they can even afford to buy, pay for their phone calls. Louisiana, two cents to four cents an hour. It's nuts. Yeah, and speaking of Louisiana, we have some news out of Louisiana, right? Yeah, I got to put on my state operations hat for this one. So, um, for the past two years, as you know, we've been working to pass our bill in Louisiana, which was remove the involuntary servitude factor from their state constitution. And last year, um, we managed to get it on the ballot, but the author of the bill stood up against his own bill saying that um, the language, the exception to the exception, which has become quite a trend now, uh, would confuse things and may cause more problems than help, and then stood against his own bill. That was something I'd never seen in my life where somebody got a bill passed and said, no, don't vote for it. But nonetheless, it happened. Uh, So we managed to uh, still get about half a million people to vote yes for that, but it lost, I think it was 65% voting yes to keep slavery as it was, because they were also confused, particularly because of the ballot language. The ballot language uh, implied that there was another exception to slavery, and people were like, we want the exception out. Why we want to vote for another exception? And that right. became a confusing issue, and so we failed. We, t- we tried again this year, and it looked good. We used the same author, Edmund Jordan, um, and he swore before God and two other racist white Republicans that he would get this done. Uh, <laughs> and he gave it his best shot, you know what I mean? Uh, we made it right. through the first committee. Uh, he told us, you know, we only got like a 45% chance of getting it through this first committee. It could fail right here. We got it through the first committee. Um, the second uh, went to the House, uh, and we got it through there 98 to 0 with 23 co-sponsors. And the next step would have been the Senate, followed by the full House, and then on to the ballot. So when it got to the Senate, they were supposed to have it like on a Friday, and they didn't have the hearings. 
what they did was suspend the rules so that the Senate can meet on Saturday in secret <laughs> and talk about our bill specifically. So they met and voted on our bill, and it failed 21-16. The bill had no exceptions. It simply says slavery and involuntary servitude are forever prohibited, period. Now, to a, a normal uh, you know, person who is reasonable, that sounds like no problem at all, right? Like you want to get rid of slavery and involuntary servitude, there it is, no problem. But if you've heard the testimony uh, on our program that we played a couple weeks ago, you know that they fought tooth and nail to be able to keep this forced labor in the Constitution. They had no intentions of taking it out or changing it in any way, and it pretty much was a dance that they were doing. And so we lost in the Senate. It never made it to the full House to vote where we thought we might have a problem there, which means that Louisiana's HB 211 now is a dead dog. It is done. There is nothing we can do to move this forward any further. I spoke with Representative Edmund Jordan, and he is as disappointed as myself and Curtis Davis and others are about how this turned out. And he intends to try for a fourth time um, next year. Uh, but we don't think it's going to be that easy. <laughs> uh, our plan now is we're going to show the world what Louisiana is really about. Um, we're going to drag their ass through the mud, deservedly so, because you have chosen twice now to keep slavery legal in your constitution. And we've all heard your testimonies and justifications about why you want to do it. So you can't even confuse mm-hmm. that, that anymore. Um, so one of the first things that occurred is the president of the NAACP in Louisiana issued a travel advisory for black people saying that black people should not go to Louisiana, whether it be for Mardi Gras or tourism or otherwise, because the laws in Louisiana target specifically target black people and LGBTQT uh, communities. So we're echoing that statement. Don't go to Louisiana. Um, make them pay the price for what they're doing to people there in that state. <clears throat> no way in hell you're going to continue to be enslavers uh, and just go ahead and act like nothing has happened, like every day is just normal. That's not going to be the case. And our intentions is to make any other state that think you could do this and get away with it in 2023 has got to learn a lesson that there is a price to pay and the people are not having it anymore. Yusuf? You hit the nail on the head there. And I was just going to say, uh, you know, uh, I always, you know, whenever I think of Louisiana, I think of uh, Gil Scott Heron's song, Angola, Louisiana. You know, and he already said that it's the place where the sun doesn't go alone. He already said, you know, <laughs> right. what's going on down there. Yeah, the sun doesn't go alone down there. So, but yep. it wasn't all bad news this week. That's the good part. No, it wasn't. We and have some good news. Just to add on to the Louisiana story, next week on mm-hmm. Father's Day, Representative Edmund okay. Jordan will be joining us as a guest here on Abolition Today. So make sure you tune in next week so you can hear directly from the horse's mouth what has happened. Because they really put him through it in those hearings. And that was our May 21st episode. So if you missed that, go back to the May 21st episode. You can hear the hearings almost in their entirety. We played the vast majority of that hearing, and you can hear it for yourself. Hear the arguments. 
and that'll help you better understand the conversation we're going to have next week with Edmund Jordan. And you can also tune into our season finale from last season, season three season finale, where Edmund Jordan was on, and he explained why uh, he wanted everyone to vote against his own bill. He explained that, and he said that he was going to, you know, push forward for it again this year, and he did, but they uh, they regrouped and they were prepared for him this year. So there we have it with that. Uh, but you're right. There has been some good news, uh, particularly out of places like Ohio. We still got bills on the right. table in 2023, like California and Ohio. And Ohio has been getting a lot of good traction and a lot of good uh, press. You know, they had the same problem uh, there when mm-hmm. they presented the bill that they just wanted to remove the exception clause for slavery and involuntary servitude there was this big discussion about labor. Even one of their senators in a viral meme went as far as using our bill as an example as to why the voting threshold should go from 51 up to 60% now, just to keep people like us <laughs> from getting these right. bills through. Uh, but we've gotten a, a lot of good traction with that. Their bill has been introduced um, they have the language that they're satisfied with, which does not destroy the integrity of the bill. And let's share some of that information that came out of ABC News just uh, J- June 8th of this year. And we have Ohio legislators introducing the slavery abolitionist bill. And you'll hear reconciles, 13th Amendment, along with that. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. 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 Free the slaves and made more. They changed us down a lot to suffer and then they made more. Ohio lawmakers introducing a House joint resolution in the state house. This new push is to prohibit slavery as punishment for crime. Clara Faith joins us live in Dayton tonight and you're breaking down what this means for Ohioans, Clara. Well, Lise, it's been a hundred years since the last state in our country abolished slavery, but Ohio Constitution still allows involuntary servitude as punishment for a crime, meaning that prison inmates can work in harsh conditions with no control or pay. Now, uh, now Clara, how exactly does Ohio's Constitution compare to other states? At least during the 2022 midterm elections, five states, including Alabama, Louisiana, Oregon, Tennessee, and Vermont, had an amendment on the ballot to prohibit slavery as punishment of a crime. It passed in every state except for Louisiana. Now, coming up at 6.30 on Fox 45, we're going to hear from one of the co-sponsors of the House Joint Revolution 2. And when can voters see these measures on their ballots? Reporting live in Dayton, Clara Faith, Dayton 24-7 Now News. 13 amendments, free the slaves and made more. They chained us down a lot to suffer, and then they made more. Yeah. Uh. I done took too many L's like a debut on Murray. You don't stand for nothing. They on kids, thoughts and incarceration of bus. Till we dearly departed. Had to weigh my intentions. Double back for my hips. Yeah. Ooh, free my like the trap, huh? Yeah. 
stereo, roaches in my cereal. We ain't had no bank account, disconnect my sprint phone. Friends be looking pitiful, hard as that scenario. Sleep on the floor, sleep on the street. If you ain't got no job, ain't got no job, no food to eat. Everybody depend on you and damn it, who you ask for help. Everybody down bad, they going through the same head. You, you wanna gonna do what you gonna do, they call it surviving. They hit listing servers and they selling dope surviving. And that day you gotta hustle just to stay afloat. You look around and all your brothers in the same boat. Your skin proud, black, they put us in sex and they got us bit. I'm a police beating back, take your consent, that's straight to pit. You don't stand for nothing. They don't kill you. Start to incarceration of us. Till we delete the party. Had to wear my teeth. Double back for my hands. Yeah. God be our strength when we broke as hell. When we going through hell, living in hell, living in cells. All this depression, no, you see us in it. All this depression, no, you see us in it. Lord, it's my best will pass on all my sin. No, you will be this. I know your mercy is sin. Mercy to the slums. Mercy for us all to repent. Free us for myself. Change our high life for real. We was lost, but you ain't forsaken. You took the cross just to save us, Jay. Free my side of the trap. Free my side of the trap. Yeah, they trying to lock us up in prison. We the slaves, we the slaves. 13 of me, man. Yeah, side of the trap. Free my is out the trap now, yeah. They wanna lock us up in prison. We the slaves, we the slaves, 13 of men, man. Yeah. We the slaves, we the slaves, 13 of men. Abolition. 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 And that was followed by Reconcile 13th Amendment. Welcome back to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. And, yeah, it's great that that's going down in Ohio. And what's really funny about that, Max, is that Ohio was like one of those areas where when during the Underground Railroad, that was the target. You get to Ohio, you're free. You've crossed that Ohio River, and once you touch Ohio, you're free. And then here, all these years later, they fought for years. Fought. Shout out to Gina Kenny uh, from ensuring parole for incarcerated citizens. Like mm-hmm. she's been fighting tooth and nail for, for years, trying to get this done. So definitely want to uh, big give her a big shout out for the tremendous work that she's been doing, while at the same time trying to free her husband from prison. You know, so, uh, yeah, it, it just strikes me that Ohio has taken this stance when that used to be the symbol of freedom. In fact, I recall a few years ago when you went to, uh, what was it, the abolitionist graveyard there, or it was, it was a big memorial, something was going down in Ohio. Zanesville. Uh, up there, Matt. Yeah, Where I was spent it? about, tra- traveling, I spent some time down there. Uh, we were staying in Zanesville, but we visited several of the cities while we were there, uh, visiting the abolitionist graves, visiting the schools run by abolitionists there, the churches that were run by abolitionists. As you said, it was an abolitionist stronghold. 
And now it's a red state that it wants to keep slavery. <laughs> like, it's crazy. But even though they were a stronghold, they still accepted before the 13th Amendment these exception clauses. Ohio's one of the states, right. uh, there was four of them, that had their own exception clause prior to the 13th Amendment, which indicates that mm-hmm. they knew what this thing does. So they had already incorporated it into the Ohio State Constitution. Uh, I believe it was, I don't have the exact date in front of me, but it was at least a decade before the 13th Amendment. So, yeah, it's a big turnaround from there, for sure, of what it used to be. Yeah, and it's sad. It's, it's really want, sad thinking about that. I want to give a shout-out to Representative Jarrells, Dontavious Jarrells, who is the sponsor mm-hmm. of the bill this year. Um, we've had some good conversations, and uh, I believe that this is a brother that's going to try to get this done and uh, has every intention of doing so. You know, I, I, I used to say I don't like politics, and I will never trust any politicians. And to a large degree, mm-hmm. that is still true. I hate politics. I'm only doing this because I was told by my mentors, Malcolm X and Frederick Douglass, that you better do everything you can do if you're talking about how you want freedom. Uh, you can't eliminate anything, so I'm doing what I got to do. Uh, but as far as trusting politicians, I believe this is one of those brothers that you can trust. Um, I've only met a few so far, and I think he's one of them. Right. So Ohio's Constitution is 1806. 1806, yeah, right. Two, so, section 2 of the 1806 Ohio State Constitution. That's a long time. Like Nearly in 60 fact, years before the 13th Amendment. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that makes them third. We had the Vermont Constitution in 1777. Then there was Article 6 of the 1787 Northwest Ordinance, and then Section 2, 1806 of the Ohio State Constitution. So they were very mm-hmm. early. Very early and and understood what this was for and what it was about. And that and was what we tried while to... People were still escaping to get there. <laughs> yeah, isn't that just... It's like the twilight zone, you know what I mean? You're you're a bastion of abolition while you're undercutting the future generation's ability to be free. And that's one of the conversations that we're having today, later on, in about 20 minutes, well, Brother Chris, is, you know, there's some concern from the abolitionists, and the concern about reparations from us is that if you accept in any way, shape, or form uh, reparations for slavery, then that means that since the crime is still ongoing, it's effectively a paid-in-full stamp on your forehead, meaning that you cannot, you, you can't use double jeopardy. You can't sue them again. You know what I mean? So anything that they do mm-hmm. after that is fine. It's got a stamp of approval. You didn't end mass incarceration? Stamp of approval. You didn't remove these exception clauses? Slavery? Stamp of approval. If anything they will amp up their efforts with more incarceration and more oppression. And the future generations, the ones right behind us, won't have any way to fight it now, at least not legally, because you've already accepted a payment. You're like, yeah, we're good now. Peace. Right. All right. You have a good day. I have a good day. We're set. And that's just not good. <laughs> it's very destructive. Right. Not for you personally, because you're going to walk away with some dough or some land, or whatever it may be, but the generations that come up behind you won't have that ability. And if they quadruple 
the prison population? What are these children going to do? How are they going to be able to fight back? What resources, what abilities, what avenues will they be able to use to say, look, you're still using slavery? Because the oppression is going to be like, we were using slavery and we paid you for that. This other stuff, this ain't slavery. It's just us doing what we got to do because you're criminals. <laughs> right. And that's why I can't wait for uh, Chris to get on because, you know, when we talk reparations or when people talk reparations, they only focus on money, the financial aspect. But Chris has what he calls the five pillars of reparations. That includes a lot of other things. And, you know, really looking forward to him getting here so he can break down the other elements of reparations that it's not on people's mind. I mean, I can understand why people are trying to get that money. I understand. Believe me, I fully understand. You know, but like you just mentioned, you know, it's it, it's sort of like many of the other deals that we've accepted out throughout history when it came to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and the Housing Act. You know, all of these things, if they if they thought about the repercussions or the white backlash, as it's called, had they thought about those at that time, they would have included many other things in there at the time. So we already see the things that can go wrong. We say, what can go wrong with reparations? Well, we already see them. And so that's why it's important for us to include these things in there. But at the same time, we got to have this conversation. Can we settle reparations while slavery is still legal and in practice? So stay tuned, everyone. Chris should be here in about 20 minutes or so. I know everyone's tuned in waiting to hear from him. I'm excited to have this conversation with him. So, yeah, stay tuned. As we said earlier, you know, these are two different movements that are occurring, just like Juneteenth is a, a different movement. Juneteenth primarily is the celebration of the end of slavery. And we have people like mm-hmm. Jamil Basil Bradley who are trying to counter that narrative while still adopting a, a reason to celebrate on uh, Juneteenth. Um, and in reparations, it's the same thing. The vast majority of reparationist organizations never mention anything about modern-day slavery because that's counter uh, to their narrative of what they're doing right now. So either they're choosing on purpose not to mention it, or they simply don't know. And I guess the uh, odds are in their favor that they don't know because, you know, from the poll that Worth Rises did, they discovered that only 18% of the U.S. population is even aware that there's an exception clause to slavery in the 13th Amendment, let alone that 25 other states had it, let alone that it's in practice every single day upon you. They just had no idea that the 13th Amendment allowed for slavery. And not only did it allow it, it describes the conditions under which a U.S. citizen can be turned into state property and use slavery and involuntary servitude as a punishment for crime. But like most of us, they had been taught in school whether they were lawyers or judges or just average people, that the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, and they never really investigated any further than that, just assumed that that was the truth. I mean, all you have to do is click 13th Amendment in your search bar and look it up. It's only 47 words that you got to read, and Mm -hmm. in those 47 words, it would change your whole perspective because you finally read it. You just got to read it. That's all you got to do. And then think critically for a few minutes about it. You know, 
47 words is not a whole lot, but it changes your perspective about things. And then, you know, one and one starts equaling two instead of three again, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> you're like, okay, you look around, you see this prison population, the largest prison population that's ever existed in humanity. You see the uh, way that uh, black and brown people are over represented in the prison population, vastly overrepresented. Uh, you see how their communities are over-policed, vastly over-policed, how they're subject to these incredible fines and fees that drive entire counties' budgets and stuff like that, taking money from the people who have the least, and it all starts to make sense. <laughs> you know what I mean? Slavery right. slave catchers. <laughs> you know? You can't have slavery without a slave catcher because nobody walks into slavery on their own. You got to have slave catchers. And then you had to have also processes in order to put them into the facilities. And then you look at the courts where any day of the week you might see nothing but black people out in there paying fines and fees to go into court and nothing but white people on the other side. You know, it's very much race class based uh, and it affects poor people just like it affects black people. If you're in the wrong zip code, they will come down on you hard and use your family and your, your bodies as revenue generators. So, yeah, just read it. That's all you got to do. And for slavery abolitionists out there that want a really good argument on how to get people involved, you just tell them that. You got a phone, right? (laughs) Click 13th Amendment and read it, and then let's talk. Right. It might be the first time they ever resources. Right? I mean, it was a decade ago when I read it for the first time because, like most people, I was told, that the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. And it was never a required reading. So I went around for years believing that the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. But once I read it, that's when I realized it didn't abolish it, transferred ownership. That's all it did, transfer ownership. Who can enslave? That's what it does. It defines who can enslave, because prior to the 13th Amendment, the word slavery never existed in the Constitution. There were other hinted-at words or phrases referring to those that are enslaved. But the word slavery got codified, and it's, it's tells who can do the enslavement. So when it says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, Except this punishment for a crime where the party has been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or its jurisdiction. That makes it clear right there. Who can do the enslaving? It's only the state. The state, and that also includes the federal government as well. They're the ones that are allowed to do the enslaving. The individual can't do it. I can't go out and in a pickup truck and round up a bunch of people and chain them up and Right, you can get charged with slavery and human trafficking. Yeah, as an individual. If I had a badge, I could do the same exact thing, and it's completely legal. That's the difference. Completely legal, and the state. As you know, we did a deep dive into this particular issue where you research actual court cases regarding the Thirteenth Amendment, and discovered that the state can only be tried for slavery or human trafficking with the state's approval. <laughs> right? Hey. Like how what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Like they made yeah. it clear, like <laughs> we 
going to hold us responsible is if we say, okay, hold us responsible. I don't see that happening. So, you know, this criminal enterprise is really, really crazy how they got it set up. And, you know, just going back again to the past, as we know that the the missing link that most people are really not aware of is the convict lease uh, system, which mm-hmm. came in prior to slavery. It was being adopted, like we said earlier, in places like Ohio and Alabama and Vermont. And then it was really pushed into position as a substitute for slavery immediately after the Emancipation and the 13th Amendment. So when Texas uh, got this word from General Granger in 1865 that slavery had been abolished through the Emancipation Proclamation just uh, two years earlier, uh, the reaction from Texas was, well, there's plan B. (laughs) So the first leases in Texas came about in 1867 when two railroad companies headquartered in the state hired prison inmates to help construct their roadbeds. The parties to these early agreements, despite the enthusiasm that greeted them, did not anticipate all of the problems inherent in such a contractual arrangement. This is what they're claiming from TSHAonline.org, Texas history. Uh, They said that the most difficult problem resulting from the conflict between the profit motive of the contractors who wanted to get the most labor possible from the prisoners at the least cost and the interest of the state, which wanted at least a minimal effort to provide adequate food, clothing, and shelter for prisoners. Owing to the many difficulties encountered in the course of administrating the early leases, state officials abrogated the contracts after only a few months and the prison inmates were returned to the penitentiary. But that didn't end convict leasing in uh, Texas. After that, they started again, and they still have it going on to this day. We reported here during the Hurricane Andrew, I think it was Andrew, that hit Texas, that the Mm -hmm. Texas penitentiary reported that they had lost a half a million dollars in cotton from the rains. And we're like, cotton? (laughs) So apparently Texas prisons have used cotton fields. Right, they're still out there picking cotton. And as we pointed out earlier, for nothing, there's zero pay in Texas. So you still got black people picking cotton in Texas right now today for nothing. Why? Because they're subject to the 13th Amendment, which states that this is their punishment, slavery and involuntary servitude. It's just so crazy. And then when we had uh, Curtis on one week, and he just broke down Angola, Angola, larger than the island of Manhattan. And he just broke down how many different crops are there. And they're actually out there picking soybeans, picking strawberries, picking, you're just picking every type of fruit, vegetable that you can imagine out in those fields at gunpoint. Well, when Alonzo came, came on uh, back during the pandemic, and he said that, they were forced at gunpoint to work during the pandemic. Here, you know, the whole country is shut down, but they they still force them to go out there and work, you know, or they be shot for for refusing to work. That's what went on during that time. So we're up against a monster, Max. Well, this is this is a monster that we're fighting. We, we're, we're finding our uh, allies here and there, 
Uh, you know, I've worked for mm-hmm. years to bring the traditional allies back together. I've worked with the Quakers. I've worked with the black churches. Um, and I work with the abolitionists all to bring us all together again for the same fight that we had to go against before. Um, and some of those allies is like the ACLU. ACLU barely paid us any attention for a very long time, but then they started listening. And now uh, they have this report that's out, uh, which is 154 pages long about captive labor. Um, and they say that this is how prison labor in the U.S. violates human rights. And their number one recommendation uh, on how to change these things is to remove the exception clauses from state and federal constitutions, which allow it to be illegal. And that same rhetoric is echoed in the uh, California uh, Reparation Task Force, where their uh, recommendation is to remove the exception clause from California state constitution, which allows for uh, free labor to be used, free or cheap labor. Basically, it's free because you pay them so little that there's no payment, really, uh, that allows that to continue. So in the ACLU report, this is what they said. They said Congress should pass legislation repealing the exception clause of the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, allowing slavery and involuntary servitude to be used as punishment for a criminal conviction and states should ratify the constitutional amendment. That's their number one recommendation about how to deal with this crime against humanity, which includes captive labor. And what's so funny about that is going back to the court cases, that's what the court said ever since 1871 with the uh, Ruffin versus Commonwealth. Every court has been saying that ever since. When you, uh, they just kept saying, look, our hands are tied because of the way the 13th Amendment is written. It has to be done legislatively. It can't be done judicially. They kept saying Congress has to do something about it. Congress has to do something about it. And this is why we've been doing what we've been doing the entire time. So I see a hand up. I'm hoping that's Chris. I don't recognize the number as his number, but I'm hoping that's him. All right, let's find out. Uh, five, uh, we got 4953. Is that you, Chris? No, I was going to make a comment about the 13th. How you doing? Oh, okay. Feel free. What's your name and uh, where are you calling from? I'm calling from presently in the Delta region. My name is Pianchi. But right, the 13th explicitly say when duly convicted of a crime. Mm-hmm. And no, the 13th can't be changed by judges. No judge has the right to make a law, even Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Supreme Court only gives opinions based on the argument between two or more parties. States, which are sovereign countries, don't have to listen to the Supreme Court. And even if the legislature wanted to do an Article 5, they would have to get three-quarters of the states 75% of the states to go along with it before you can amend the United States Constitution. Right. Amendment 14 put, put the 13th Amendment off to the side, really. But if you're convicted of a crime, well, you got to serve the punishment. Um, that's assuming you actually committed a crime and weren't criminalized. 
Because, you know, uh, like marijuana laws, for instance, in 2017, there were more people arrested for personal possession of marijuana than for all violent crimes combined. So, you know, you got to first actually be a criminal um, in order for this to apply. Marijuana laws are federal restrictions. They're still, they're still federal laws against the possession of marijuana. It's still listed as uh, that sort of drug. Yeah, so in that department, you're absolutely right. At the same time, you have to realize that not every person in in prison has actually committed a crime. I mean, absolutely. this isn't something a new. Lot of people this, in this prison goes all the way back to convict leasing. They were just snatching people up and putting well, on them. If there's some people that's in prison that's uh, uh, that's uh, presumed to be innocent, there is a due process method that they can go about trying to prove that they was convicted erroneously as um, organizations. I mean, we're, we're aware of that, you know, and it's uh, yeah, not you didn't say it in your as, description. as you make it seem. Yeah, it's yeah, not that yeah, simple. There people that end up doing 30, 40, 50 years for crimes they didn't commit and die in prison. And they've gone yeah, they've absolutely right. with all their remedies. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Again, there's people who commit crimes that don't. Yes, people who commit crimes that don't get ever get punished whatsoever. Yeah, it's like so. I think it's a fair system. Murders are never solved. Yeah, I think it's a fair system, but uh, everything can't be perfect. But as far (laughs) as changing the thirteenth, as far as changing the thirteenth amendment, ultimately, whether it's done from the legislative uh, body of Congress both houses, or if it's done by the states. The states have a right to do an Article 5 and amend the U.S. Constitution we're, also. We're, we're but it takes three quarters of the states to approve. Pardon what, me? What did you say your name was again? I didn't catch your My name, name in Tianti. the beginning. Yes, Tianti. Tianti. How you doing? Tianti. Tianti. Is this your first time? Yes, sir. Is this your first time tuning in to Abolition today? I don't, I don't know. It probably is. I've just Kind of got nothing to do, and I've seen the. Uh... <laughs> All right. Well, there are two different ways that this is occurring. One is the convention of states is happening as we speak, so they're trying to organize the states, as you said, into an Article Five convention of states. I believe they have like twenty-six or more states that are on board for that already. That is predominantly red states, and it's predominantly uh, right-wing. Uh, legislators that are involved in that. And then the other way is what we're doing right now. We understand that we need 39 state representatives on board in order to introduce a new amendment that would counter the 13th. And so we're working on that state by state. We've already done it now in eight states, and we've got more than two dozen that are in process. Well, you said something that wasn't quite accurate. It's not for a red state. It's for U.S. citizens in any state. I myself is a volunteer for the convention of states. As a matter of fact, I've been working on some new sign-ups today, introducing them and thanking them. Mm. So it has nothing to do with whether the state is red or blue. It's about the people of this country who are U.S. citizens and feel that there is a need for some change, and it levies them the right way to do it. There's only two ways that the U.S. Constitution can be amended. One, Article 5 says the first part about the Congress. The second way is through the states doing it themselves, which they are presently doing 
there's 20 states, I mean 19 states, that has proposed and ratified the proposals. Yes, so we're both doing the same thing at the same time, trying to get to the same conclusion. And I understand where you're coming from based on what you said earlier, where you think the system is fair, and that is as far from the truth as it could possibly get. So I I get it, Uh, and you're involved in the Convention of States. I get it. You're probably conservative as well. Would I be wrong in that? Yes, I'm black and I'm conservative, and I'm not no redneck and some of the other despiters. Nobody ever said anything like that. Yeah, we didn't say well, anything like that. Do. I didn't say you did, but right. some people do before I talk to you. But as I said before, there's uh, many states, whether I think even have blue states, we want to call the legislative body, uh, that, uh, you know, proposes uh, that this Article 5 be applied. Black people, white, up, up this. You know, you got blacks that's also involved with the convention of states. Yeah, I've seen a few of them. Um, matter of fact, we're going to get into some conversation about something like that. But I, I'm, I, I need to end our conversation here because we're about to get our guests to come in. And before that, we want to play a track uh, that we would like for him to comment on. And I appreciate you calling in and your perspective. Thank you very much. And please continue to listen. I appreciate the listen to us. Indeed. I appreciate yeah, have a day, day. Yes. Peace. Thank you for your call. All right, so yes, uh, Chris should be calling in at any moment right now, uh, but we want what we want. Corinne has her hand up. Uh, okay, well let's see here. Let's let's bring Corinne in. Peace Corinne, to Hi, to the show. Yes. I have a question about the reparation because I know that you. Um, I listened to Sam's show. They kind of talked about reparation, and the man that was on Sam's. Um, so he said that if you don't connect reparations with money, then you don't understand reparations. And I was like, oh, my gosh, because when I, because I testify for Vermont when we are during our reparation bill, and I said reparation doesn't always mean money. But then after I listened to Sam's show, I was like, why would I say something like that? Oh, my gosh, I was so ignorant. <laughs> and now, I, you know, I'm so glad that you guys have that guy coming because I want to know, is it dumb for us to say reparations and to be like, oh, then – we're not talking about money because as a future civil attorney, you know, I don't live in criminal law. I prefer to be in civil law. I want to pay people for all that suffering. And I wanted to know, you know, does, if you're talking about reparations and you're not talking about paying people, are you really talking about reparations? And I just wanted to put that out there for that guy to really talk about it because I know in Sam's show, they said you have to. So I it's, it's I all good. Sure Chris <laughs> all just good. walked in the room. We're Chris definitely about to put some we're things on the sure screen. We get that answer for you. <laughs> All Thank right. you. All right, I'm listening. Thank you, Sister Corinne. All right, so before we bring you in, Chris, we want you to hear something. You know, uh, you just heard conservative perspective a moment ago, uh, but we've got a clip from Fox News uh, that has some questions, and uh, we want to share that with you and our audience, and then we'll introduce you when you come back. When we come back after that. And uh, you can go ahead and give us your uh, response to it. So you're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. We're about to bring in Chris Lotson, a leading voice in slavery reparations. But before that, we're going to listen to reparations from Fox News, outnumbered with Emily Kelly McKay. And that's uh, going to be mixed with KRS's one, Knock Em Out Instrumental. We'll be right back after this. 
Abolition. Abolition. California's Reparations Task Force has approved a plan to make cash payments to certain black residents and issue a formal state apology for slavery. And California taxpayers are set to inherit a massive bill. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Slavery, California, I know what you're thinking. We'll get to it. Under the proposal, eligible black residents would receive compensation of up to $1.2 million. In total, that could cost an estimated eight. billion. That's more than two and a half times the state's annual budget. Some activists don't even think that's enough. We must repair this damage. We must repair it. Reparations are not only morally justifiable, but they have the potential to address long-standing racial disparities and inequality. You say nothing about slavery. Nothing! So the equivocal number from the 1860s for 40 acres today is $200 million for each and every African-American. Bill. Hmm. Um, Slavery was abolished in California in 1850. Um, I don't know. I, I think based on the sound bites you just heard, that doesn't matter to the folks who were no. talking at that event. William Lodge Justice covered this story for us earlier today. Uh, he told me a couple of things I wasn't aware of. This task force was created after the death of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. So it's been going on for a while right now. It comprised of one Japanese-American. Remember World War II, Japanese-Americans, internment camps during the Second World War. And everyone else is black uh, on this board. And... You don't need to be a descendant of a slave, and you don't need to show harm. But I, I don't know, I don't know where this goes. I don't know where you get the money. I don't know what Hispanics say in California. Um, but the rubber's going to meet the road when it comes to the state to go ahead and say, "All right, guys, time to pony up money." The the reparations that that man at that city council meeting was talking about, and reparations, I think, as most people understand it. Somebody in your family had to be a slave. Um, oof. I, I, as I recall, when the original proposal was put out there, you have to prove that you lived in California prior to 1939, I think. Let me check that. Um, but it's not just California. Your home, this is spreading to other cities. And your hometown of Kansas City is talking about an idea, too. Right. You know, the city council granted a, a board to look into this as well. Um, I, I, I think you're going to see this and do you more think other, and more frequently. Other um, diverse lanes, uh, minorities will get involved, like the one Japanese mm-hmm. participant and the one in California? I, I, I don't know. I are think, they, are I they think, open to do that? I think California, anything's possible. But again, when it com- whether it's $1.2 million, which was... Or $200 million. Or $200 million, or even $100,000. Right. Who Talk pays about- and when? Um, talk to me about the legality of this. Right, and I, I just want to make sure that viewers understand, so that's left unresolved yet. So under the plan right. that this, this group has put forth over the last two years, um, this board was created by, the, by Governor Gavin Newsom. So it's unclear, unresolved, 
exactly who of the 2.5 million African Americans living in California would be eligible. Some argue, including at that meeting, that you would have to be a direct descendant from slaves. Others argue that simply those Californians affected by decades of racist policies should qualify, yes. How do you um, prove that? Exact dollar amounts would be left to lawmakers to decide after the commission makes its final report to the slate legislature. That's at the end of June. But economists working with this, as we thought, we know the total cost could exceed $800 billion, which, just a reminder and for perspective, is two and a half times California's annual budget. So it right. raises more questions than it answers, frankly, number one being the eligibility and the determination of such Harris, and also who and how this would be paid for, because the answer so, is... So how do we prove that people have been wrong by decades of policies, if you're like, as that gentleman said, uh, in the hole for 200 million is what he thinks that each person of color is. I shouldn't say people of color, particularly blacks. Yeah, I, I don't know how you prove that. Um, and I also don't know how you pay for it. To Emily's point, uh, there was no cost estimate in this. Um, it's given to the legislature on July 1st. They will decide what to do with it. Governor Newsom's been pretty silent on this. Um, he could take executive action to override the legislature if they don't adopt it. A lot remains to be seen. He needs those votes, though, if he's going to run for president. I would just quickly say that there's a $22 billion deficit in California, and that was underestimated by Newsom by $7 billion. So they're already running a deficit. So how do you pay for it? Wow. Um, okay, I was going to ask you about DNA, but as Bill and Emily have pointed out, apparently you don't have to be the descendant of a slave. So wouldn't that mean that everybody can get this money? Well, even if you did have to be, DNA would be very difficult at this point. Because it wasn't very good records back then. But, you know, the paternalism of white liberalism is astounding here. And all you really have to do is look at the policies. So look at what happened under President Trump. You had President Trump's First Step Act, where he released thousands of nonviolent black men from prisons. Under President Trump, you had the low, historic lows unemployment for black Americans. Now, President Biden's policies, unfortunately, the soft on crime, you've had larger crime waves in specifically Democratic areas with black victims. And you also are favoring illegal immigration, which are taking away from resources from poor black communities. So, you know, they can talk the talk, but truly when it comes down to it, the Democratic policies are hurting black Americans and these reparations are really just a means for optics and they're not actually doing anything to help black Americans. What you said is still ringing around in my head, Bill, and that is the fact that, no, don't have to be a descendant of a slave. I mean, I, I think everybody will come out into the street saying, where's mine? Yeah, I think under this setup they have that a special, a different state agency will then determine lineage and genealogy. Wow. So, how that works, I no. do not know. Knock him out the boss, Chris. Out the boss, Chris. Knock him out the boss, Chris. Out the boss, Chris. Knock him out the boss, Chris. Out the boss, Chris. Knock him out the boss, Chris. 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 Knock, 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 Chris is going to knock them out the box. Chris Logsdon is the president and lead organizer, advocate for the Coalition for Just and Equitable California, as well as a community organizing and policy manager in the Sacramento office of the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, originally from New York City, 
now living in Sacramento, California. Chris has organized and advocated on behalf of local community-based and political organizations, as well as with local, state, and national nonprofit organizations for over 13 years on both the East Coast and West Coast. Chris is also the 2022 recipient of the Fannie Lou Hamer Boots on the Ground Award for Community Organizing from the National Assembly of American Slavery Descendants. Welcome, Chris, to the show. Come on in here and knock them out the box. I know you just heard knock that Knock them out the box, Chris. Man, come on. <laughs> dig in on them, man. <laughs> Yo, I was, my, head was, my head was banging when I was hitting that. <laughs> oh, my head was banging. That is the best intro music. I am going to be stealing that intro music right there. I'm going to use that when I wake up in the morning, right, when I go to bed at night. <laughs> knock them out the box, Chris. So oh, what, is your, your res, what is your response to some of the things that you heard, like, you know, the $800 billion, the $1.2 million, uh, California <laughs> is twice their budget, uh, No, anybody can get reparations, um, and reparations are just optics. So what is your, yeah. your response to this? My first response is some of those people at Fox don't know what they're talking about. Um, it is very, very, very clear, and this is something that this is my general response. Then I want to get into the specific pieces that they was talking about. But general, generally, Fox News is not really to be trusted as it concerns anything reparations information related. If you hear anything about reparations from folks at Fox News, you need to double, triple, and quadruple check it because I heard so many things that was incorrect mm-hmm. in what what was played, and it's one thing to be incorrect. It's another thing to be a media, news, reporter, journalist, organization whose who job it is to get the right answer. It's, it's one thing for me and you, like, in our own lives to be incorrect about information personally, like everyday mm-hmm. people. It's another thing is if it's your job to be right or at least have correct answers and you get that wrong. And some of the things that I heard just now was – demonstrably false like like stuff that you should know if if you are either working on reparations in california or if you are a media organization you should know some of the things so let's let me get into a couple of the biggest things i think was wrong first it's on the who's getting it so by what the state reparations task force said in 2022 not 2023 in march of 2022 you have to be someone who is an African-American descendant of an enslaved or free black person who was living in the United States before the year 1900 to receive reparations in California. So let me make that clear. You do have to have someone who was enslaved in your ancestry, in your history, to be eligible for reparations in California, or you have to be a descendant of someone who was free and black living in the United States before the year 1900. And that second part, that free and black and living in the United States before the year 1900, is in there because of the special danger that free blacks were in in that period. At any time, if you were free before the year 1900 and you were captured somehow or somehow be- got into the into the wrong place at the wrong time, you could be enslaved. So those folks were in a special kind of danger. I'm not sure if folks here have seen the movie 12 Years a Slave, where there was a, a story about someone named Solomon Northrup who was free and living in the mm-hmm. North but kidnapped and sold into slavery and then 
was enslaved himself for 12 years. So it's the descendants of those folks and the descendants of those who were enslaved who are eligible for reparations in California. So you have to have some connection to slavery in the United States to be eligible for reparations in California. That's the first thing. Second thing is, so there's this talk about, you know, the $1.2 million and and how much individuals are going to be eligible for Uh, Right now, according to the state reparations task force here in California, how much each individual is eligible for would be different and would depend based on how long they've lived in the state of California. Generally speaking, the longer you lived in California, the more you're eligible for if you're also a direct descendant, et cetera, too. So you have to be a descendant, et cetera, and also you have to have lived in California for at least six months at any time between the years of 18 and 2020. So if you have the six months residency and you have the descendancy piece, you're eligible. And then how much you're eligible for will depend on how long you've lived in the state of California. Um, I think that's the second thing I want to say. Last thing I'll say quickly too, because I, I want to get to, to the other points and, and stuff that I know you want to, you want to talk about too, which is, so, you know, there's this question of, you know, can California really afford this? Right. I mean, you know, we hear about the deficit that there was there was talk about the deficit and and how this is, you know, the the cost estimate, you know, of eight hundred billion dollars, which is true, by the way, the the estimate that the economists who work with the state reparations task force, they are estimating about at least eight hundred billion dollars in losses. Um, And so that would be potentially what the reparations bill would be. Uh, But the question is, you know, and, and, and and I've heard, yeah, you know, this is like, you know, two and a half times the California state budget. Etc. If the question is, can California afford this? The answer is yes. California has the largest, excuse me, fourth largest economy on planet Earth. Let me say that again. The state that we live in here in California, the state itself has the fourth largest economy on planet Earth, meaning our state Mm. has a larger economy than almost every other country in the world, with the exception of three. And one of those other countries is our country, too. So California can afford this. The question is, how do we afford this? And we can absolutely find and, and, and think through some really, really creative ways, and I'm happy to talk about them. But can we afford this? Yes. Thank you, Brother Chris. I uh, appreciate your responses to that. And I have one question on top of all of that is, how does it feel that Fox News continually does this through black representatives? Uh, so they had Harris Faulkner uh, covering these questions coming from the news slash conservative uh, population. Uh, and if it were true, you know, anybody could stand on it. But again, they often do this. They'll have someone like Harris Faulkner be the spokesperson for this that, as you said, are demonstrably false. I think that's a brilliant point. Um and let's just let's just talk real, you know, because I know this show is about talking real, and the audience like to hear real real talk. So let's mm-hmm. just talk real. We know, and we've seen this. How many how many times as a people have we seen this over history? The first line of defense sometimes against the things that we're fighting against is our own people. That's just a, right. a, a tragic, unfortunate part of our history. Sometimes the first line of defense is our own people that the sometimes the first thing that we have to fight through is our own people sometimes some of our and this is it's, it's usually a very small number of our people but sometimes 
some very small number of our people allow themselves to be used by some of the other people. And whether or not they agree with it or not, whether or not they know it or not, I can't really put myself in their head. But what I know is that it's not uncommon. And it's something that we've seen through history time and time again where some of the first people and groups and things that we have to fight through is some of the same people that we're fighting for. This is true. I have experienced this firsthand many times. Um, that is the first line of defense. As you said, they'll throw out their black voices at us uh, to say, look, our Negroes say something your Negroes don't say. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's a way to cause con- con- confusion. It's a way to make it look like there's division among black folks in order to scare away the other kind of support that we're going to need, too. Right? So it's it's it, it, it has a couple of different uses and a couple of different purposes. One is to scale, is, is, to, is to show and create more division and confusion among the people who it's for. And that has the effect of scaring away people who may not be black or may not be eligible for reparations, you know, from being able to support it because they may look at it and say, well, listen, you know, y'all own community ain't really got no got no one voice on this, so why would I get involved if I'm outside your community? So that's one effect of it. And then two, it has the effect of keeping our own people in this discuss, debate, you know, sort of, you know, circle where we don't actually move forward. The discussion debate is good, but only if it gets us moving forward. Um, I wanna make a, a comment or two and then I wanna ask you a question. Uh, the comments in regards to the clip that we heard, one, they were talking about how this is twice California's budget. And my immediately, uh, immediate response is, so what? We're talking about hundreds of years of oppression. Uh, did you think that you could just pay it off in a year? Is that what your thought process is and how it works? Right. Uh, of course not, right? This is a debt that's owed for generations and generations. And then they kind of ridiculed the guy who was talking about $200 million for each black resident. Well, he's talking near the truth because if you actually paid the minimum of what's owed, that's effectively what it would be. Uh, so I, I can't fault for a man for asking for it. He, I doubt if he's going to get it, but that's not stopping him from pointing out that that's what it would end up being uh, for each black resident. But, and as you pointed out as well, we're talking about descendants of slaves, not just any black people or anybody, but those who trace their lineage to uh, slavery, as well as those who were in America prior to 1900, correct? Sorry about that. I was on mute. Absolutely, yes. Yes. All right. So now I want to switch gears a little bit because, you know, we are limited on time, and I want to get to to what what, uh, the question is for the day, is can we have uh, a settlement for reparations, uh, God willing, while slavery is still legal and in practice? Oh, that is the question of the day, isn't it? I've been wrestling with this question, not just since you and I connected, Max, and not, and definitely not since, you know, I connected with Yusuf also through the work that we're doing on, you know, the End Slavery in California Act here in California, you know, Assembly Constitutional Amendment 8, which would remove the slavery and voluntary servitude exception from our state constitution. Very, very important work. I've been wrestling with this question really since I got involved in the reparations work early on in 2019 and 2020. 
and especially in earnest since I got involved in what was last year, you know, the 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 California Abolition Act, which would have also ended the slavery and involuntary servitude in our state constitution. Um, and so I've been wrestling with this with this question. I know the state reparations task force has been wrestling with this question too. Actually, one of the recommendations that the state reparations task force here in California has is to end the slavery and involuntary servitude exception from the state constitution. Um, so it's 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 a tough question, and I'm not sure to be to be to be honest with you. And I would love to to hear your thoughts on it, and and Yusuf as well. I'm not sure. Um, you know, this is. Um, this is a tough question, and it's something that we are wrestling with. We are working through. Obviously, I would love to see, and and you know, to be honest with you, I expect that we're going to be successful in in 2024, actually ending the involuntary servitude and slavery exception in California, because of how we're expecting California reparations legislation to be timed. We may actually end that exception before there is reparations in California. That would be my like best case scenario, and that is very very possible. So we may have an answer to that question in the you know in saying we will have ended that slavery and involuntary servitude exception before there is rep- reparations. But man, it is a it is a tough question, and I'm and I'm fighting through it every every single day. I think it is a good thing that both of these efforts are moving forward simultaneously, right? The reparations efforts as well as slavery abolition efforts because it's going to save a lot of time if we end slavery if we can end slavery reparations that's already been discussed we're down to the line we can go ahead and move right Mm -hmm. into that with almost no time lost but if the reverse were to happen i believe that it would cause major problems not only for us presently but for generations to come Uh, and what i mean by that and I said this a little earlier in the program. I don't think you heard it because you were at another event. But what I mean by that is if we end or if we accept in any state reparations now, that is effectively saying paid in full. Uh, whatever we've done, we paid it in full. And now it would give them the opportunity to justify what they've already been doing. So, for instance, with the California involuntary servitude, they could ramp that up four or five you could see, you know, a million people in California's prisons all of a sudden because they've criminalized blackness to the degree that it's even beyond what they've been doing. And there's nothing that the generations after that can do legally uh, to charge them because you've already accepted a settlement for a crime that had not ended. Equivalent of that is accepting a settlement in a case where a drug company is selling drugs that are killing people but you don't stop selling the drugs. Your thoughts on that? Very, very, very important points. And, and I, you know, I would tend to agree. The only thing I would say to, to add to that is, so the state reparations task force here in California is, I think, potentially recommending a mechanism that might address the concern there, which I think is a very, very valid concern. And, and, and as I've mentioned, it's something that I'm working through and grappling with. And, and, and I know the state task force has been for, you know, a couple of years now as, it, as it's been working. And so I think one thing definitely for folks to know specifically as it's on this point is that the state reparations task force is recommending reparations in the form of direct financial compensation in part 
um, and that there be, as a part of that direct financial compensation, that, that there be two levels of it. Uh, and I'm going to try to walk through this as simply as possible. The first level of direct financial compensation that the State Reparations Task Force is recommending is what I sort of describe as the general level, meaning if you're eligible, meaning you are a descendant and you have at least six months residency in California, you are going to be eligible for a certain amount of compensation for a particular set of harms generally, meaning you won't have to show any documentary evidence of any of, of any like evidence of, hey, I was harmed in housing specifically, or I was harmed in education specifically, or this particular bad thing happened, so I deserve X, Y, Z. It's going to be assumed that because you are a descendant of U.S. slavery, that you live with the current day impacts of that history and legacy in your life and in your body, generally speaking. So that's the first level. The second level, though, which I, and this is the level I think is, is important to your point, that the, so the second level, level that the task force is recommending is that there be a particular or a way for folks to file particular claims on top of the general reparations that they're eligible for. Let me, let me break that down a, a, a little bit. So the idea is that on top of the general financial compensation that you're going to be eligible for, the state task force here in California for reparations is saying you are also going to be allowed and able to file particular claims for specific, particular bad things that you think should be redressed also. In this particular case, and I think it's very, very relevant now, it is, I think, a, a good example for folks who are either formally or currently in, in car, incarcerated, but let's say folks who are formally incarcerated who were forced to work, right? Uh, those, I think, that is a particular type of claim that folks would then still be eligible to file particular reparations and redress claims for on top of the general uh, L the, the, the general compensation that they would be eligible for. So there may be, and this, and, and this is to your point, Max, there, there may be recourse legally, at least through the reparations process, for folks to file particular claims for things like being forced to work, et cetera, uh, even if and when, but if California does reparations before we end the in, in, involuntary service to slavery ex exception. I think we're going to do it before, but there is that potential pathway too. Thank you, Chris. Uh, we got a couple of sure. callers, it looks like, that want to join in the conversation. Uh, I'll ask sure. our callers if you can. Just keep it brief because we've only got a short time with uh, Chris. Uh, but let's start with 0216. Uh, I think this is Travel Rain. Um, welcome yeah. back to Abolition Day. Uh, my lovely wife of three-plus decades. How you doing? Hey. <laughs> Travel, what, what, do you hey, have hey. a question or comment? <laughs> Yeah, I like that, don't y'all? I have a quick question. With regards to reparations, how are they going to determine whether or not you are dependent of a slave or not? Because yeah. I have a feeling that we'll try and find some way to weasel out of paying a whole bunch of people whatever payment is involved. Oh, I love that question. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And that's a question that we get fairly regularly too, and so it's a really good question to to be asking, right? It's it's reminiscent it's, of the five dollar Indian. 
Right on, yeah. right on. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right on yeah. point there, man. Right. Yeah. <laughs> with some of the tribals, I know with my tribe in particular, they want you to fill out all this long red tape paperwork, and you have to trace your ancestry back to 1700 and change, and they take you through a whole rigmarole. And even if you have all the proof and whatnot, they tell you, no, you don't qualify. Yeah, so yeah. Thank you for that. Coming? Yeah, thank you. And the and I love the example that that you gave too, and and the example that Max you were you were just talking about too, because we mm-hmm. have some examples of you know things I think that we want to learn from in the past with some other groups, right? Um, the short answer to your question though is to be determined, and that's the and so and I want you to hear this from 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 me and from you know from someone who's been working on this very, very closely, there is no direct answer to that question yet. So if, 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 if anyone says that there is, it's not true. Uh, what the State Task Force for Reparations in California has said, though, what, what, what they have said so far is that um, they want to, the state to create something called the <laughs> Office of Genealogy um, and sit that office inside of a new state agency called the California American Freedmen Affairs Agency, and that the Office of Genealogy be empowered Two, one, design the process of how you demonstrate you are a descendant of U.S. slavery. And two, mm-hmm. give, us, give us an understanding of what type of records or what type of, of doc, documentation, et cetera, you may or may not need. I think from our perspective, though, from our organization um, at the Coalition for a Just and Equitable California, we have a couple of – we have three general goals around this. The, the, the first is – and this is our organization's goals – the, the first organizational goal that, that, that we have around this is that 100% of those who are eligible, 100% of the descendants receive reparations. That's, uh, that, that's our goal, and that's what we're going to be working for. Two, one, one of, two, our other goal is that the burden of cost and the burden of, of you know, doing the research itself not be placed on the actual people who would be potentially eligible, but placed on the state itself. The argument that we make is that the state broke it, so the state has to fix it. And and so and so those are those are the those are the two sort of other things and other goals that we're going to be very very fo- fo- focused on making sure that the cost burden financially is not on us, and that the the cost burden time and research wise is not on us too. Last thing to say is there's different ways to do this. I think there's a too easy way to design this in a too hard way too. So it sounds like the example that you're talking about from your own experience is sort of like a too hard way, right? Like it's too hard to to show that you're eligible for what you're eligible for. So I, I think that's something that we, we want to stay away from. I also think that we want to stay away from the too easy too, right? We don't want this to be too open for, as Max was saying, the, you know, the, the $5 thing, right? Or the people who could just sort of pay their way in or make mm-hmm. it too easy for, for there to be fraud, right, where somebody could just say I'm this and there's no sort of way to enforce it too. Um, so there's a too easy and then there's a too hard. We have to get somewhere in the middle. Which brings about a second question. I'm in the South, and here in the South, when white people see you, sometimes the first thing they say is, oh, I have a black daughter-in-law. Oh, I have a black child. Oh, I have a black grandson. And they are going to be trying to put their hands in the pot, per se, Mm. 
and representation for this black grandson, black son, whatever, whoever they adopted. How will you be handling that? That's another brilliant question, and I, I, it's a it's a question that we hear often too. And so it's also another great great question. So according to the state reparations task force, just saying you're black or being black is not going to be enough, right? Just saying you're black or having someone who's black in your family history, et cetera, is not going to be enough. Just being able to check a box saying that you're black or or African American is not going to be enough. You have to have also at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. So the state task force here in California says specifically that to be eligible for reparations, an individual must be an African-American, so a black or African-American descendant of a child of enslaved or free black person who was living in the United States before the year 1900. So no one who is not both self-identifying as black or African-American and also a descendant um, will be eligible for reparations in California. You have to have both of those two things. So that would prevent a lot of folks, maybe not everybody, but a lot of folks who would, would try to at least, you know, or at least have, have a successful try at at least getting into the reparations where they shouldn't be. Um, I'm, I, I can't guarantee that it's going to be 100% foolproof because it does depend, uh, again, on how the new state agency and the new Office of Genealogy actually designed the program. So I, I, don't, I don't want to speak too far ahead in front of them. But what we know already is that just saying you black, just saying you African American is not going to be enough, and right and rightly so. So no Rachel Dolezal's. Uh, right. Thank, thank you, you very much. Ray. Thank, <laughs> thank you, so Tribal much. Ray. Uh, thank you, Chris, for that answer as well. I don't think Tribal's going to have to worry too much. She is a direct descendant of Captain Paul Cuffey, which is uh, the namesake of our uh, 501c3 here, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center. So she's a direct descendant of him, who was a free black. Uh, man in the United States that uh, built his own shipping company, became one of the first black uh, millionaires in the country and used his shipping company uh, as it was part of the immigration scheme to free black people who were enslaved here in the United States. Mm, wow. Um, wow. Love it. Yep. Yeah, I got one more caller. I'm going to bring in if you, again, if you can keep it brief, we'd appreciate it because I, we've got a couple more things we want to cover with brother Chris. So, Five two eight three. You're on mission today. Uh, state your name, question or comment. Yeah, my name is Sarge, and I have uh, two comments. Uh, for which I would like to hear a response after I summarize the comments to you. All right. Okay. First of all, the first question or comment, and the question I would like to ask deals with the Thirteenth um, Amendment exception for slavery, of course, as a punishment for a crime where the party shall have been duly convicted. Now, uh, as, a, uh, as I look over the penal systems in the United States, 16 states in the Union have no exceptions for this as a, as a constitutional matter in the state constitutions. Seven states have no allowances or exceptions whatsoever. And in all the other states, there's no mention at all whatsoever of involuntary servitude or slavery with regard to this matter. So... My question to you is, since uh, the 13th Amendment quite clearly allows, as a constitutional matter, involuntary servitude and slavery when you have been convicted of a crime, how is it possible to give reparations to someone 
when that particular right isn't violated since it's been made a constitutional matter. So if, if I got this correct, your question is, how can you pay reparations to somebody who was illegally slaved? And there was no yes. law broken because the 13th Amendment clearly allows this condition. Exactly. How do right. one collect reparations for something that's legal? Brother Chris, you want to tackle that? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's the that's the the core of what we're of what we're talking about to, today, right? It's it's how it's how how do we do that? I think one thing that we must do is actually end that slavery and involuntary servitude exception. I think that is that is partly how we get to reparations for that slavery and involuntary servitude exception. And as I mentioned, um, the State Reparations Task Force has set up or he is recommending a process whereby folks who potentially were the victims of involuntary servitude and slavery in our state prisons will have a way to file for a reparations claim on top of that. And that is, as I was talking about earlier, around how the state task force is opening up a way for people who have a particular claims for particular harms to be, to be able to apply for reparations for those particular harms on top of the general financial payments and compensation that they're, that they're eligible for. But shortly to your, to your, to your question, the short answer is first, we remove that slavery and involuntary servitude exception without question that must happen first. And then also, take advantage of the of the process that the state reparations task force at least here in california has set up all right now that paves the way for my next comment and my next question now that i have your answer to the first one now there's a two provisions in the united states constitution article one section nine uh says that no bill of attainder or ex post facto law shall be passed by congress and article one section 10 prohibits the states from the same now, it would seem to me as if you go back and you retroactively make slavery either illegal or a violation of human rights, given the fact that it was entirely constitutional under the 10th Amendment in 1860 and 1859. That sounds suspicious to me, like an ex post facto law that is prohibited by the Constitution. Now, how do you get around that one? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one, um, and you know, I'm I'm also reminded also of how the courts over time have interpreted a lot of what the Constitution says. Right, I think you know the you know I think right now we're we're in a space where we we look a lot at how the courts have interpreted what the Constitution says or have have you know what the what the what the courts have told us about what the Constitution meant, right? Um, and so so I. I, I think it's an important question. I'm not 100% sure of the answer, to be to be quite honest with you. I would say one thing, though, that um, I think it's important, and I, actually what you just said kind of sounds a little bit like what my answer to was in the first part of the question, which was that because there is – so the, the first thing we, we, ha, we have to do is remove that involuntary servitude and slavery exception. I think that has to happen first. Um, and also then take advantage of the program and the – the the way that the state reparations task force, at least here in California, has opened up for reparations to ha- to happen. But it's a it's a it's a tough question, and to be quite honest, I'm not 100 percent sure of what the answer is. And I uh, oh I'm sorry, caller, I, I cut you off there. Say it again. Yes, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, I'm sorry, I noticed that many people are making appeals to the De- Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I'd like to remind your audience again 
that the United States has repeatedly refused to ratify that. The Senate has, has considered it on five or six separate occasions and has repeatedly refused to ratify the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to an effect that has no legal effect in the United States unless and until the United States Senate ratifies it as a treaty matter. Uh, thank you, caller. Uh, we are running very short on time. I got to give my brother here a chance to say some final comments. I appreciate you calling in and your comments. Uh, hopefully, we answered some of the questions. Uh, I do want to add to that and say, from a layman's perspective, the reparations that we're going for right now are about a time when slavery was legal then. It was openly practiced in front of everybody, and yet here we are at a point where we're trying to get reparations for that. I think the same thing applies post-1865. All of that has been legal the whole time. Being legal doesn't mean it's right. All right, so Brother Chris, uh, we're coming up on the end of our second hour of our program just before our Bridging the Gap segment. And I want to give you a chance to tell our audience anything you want to tell them, but I want you to help me out if you can with one thing. What would you say to your contemporaries across the country who are also lead, leading this fight in various organizations and arenas in regards to trying to find a way where we can, as you just said, get rid of the exception first and move forward? And after that, please feel free to say whatever you want, send them to any website you want, or ask for any assistance that you need. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I appreciate that. I'll, I'll try to make this as brief as possible because I really do appreciate your your time. Your, I mean, this is my fourth event or appearance this weekend talking about reparations. I just walked out mm -hmm. of another event um, right, in, right into this, um, and I couldn't be more happy to be here, and I feel great. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you. I think – yes, sir. No, thank, thank, thank you, and thank you, you Yusuf, also. Um, I'm such sure, fans man. and such ad admirers of your work, and I, I learn from you both every single time I get to be around you. Um, whether you know it or not, I'm soaking in knowledge every time I'm around you. Um, so I think it's important to say, and I think you made this point very, very well, Max, which is, and I think this is actually a point that we that is, bears repeating, specifically because we know that that involuntary servitude slavery exception was put in the Constitution on purpose to allow for slavery stuff after the end of quote-unquote slavery. Um, and this is important to note here, too, that reparations is not just about slavery or not just about um, the period uh, that, that we think of as tra traditional slavery, the modern-day slavery. Reparations is about the period of traditional slavery, so, so the stuff up until the 1860s or the, you know, the Civil War, and, and for the stuff that came after slavery, too. And one of those things is the involuntary servitude slavery exception in the state constitution. So in that sense, what we're fighting for fits right along those, along those lines, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't um, mean that we don't have to end the slavery and involuntary servitude exception, you know, also. Um, last, the other last thing I want to say before I jump into some, there's some ways to, you know, get in contact with us is when I came on, there was a, a young woman who was um, mentioning my, me on the podcast with Sam Correct. Brown, who we have the privilege of working with. Um, and I just wanted to say something about the, the, the point that, that she made um, earlier too, because we do make the point that, and I, and I say this a lot, 
if it doesn't have direct compensation, it ain't reparations. And this is important. If it doesn't have direct financial compensation, it ain't reparations. Why do I say that? For two reasons. One, because 99.999% of any reparations that have happened anywhere else in the, in the world, anything that you could call reparations, has had some sort of direct compensation to it. Anywhere else, there has been some sort of direct compensation to it. So if it was good for everyone else, it's good, good for us too. And secondly and lastly, because according to international law and international standards, as the brother who was just speaking and, and, and giving great comments mentioned, according to international standards, rep, rep, any reparations program has to have five pieces in it. The five pieces are compensation, restitution, rehabilitation, guarantees of non-repetition, and satisfaction. So reparations can't be reparations without the direct compensation. It could have other stuff too, but you can't leave out the direct compensation. Lastly, uh, thank you so much for your time. You can find me and my organization, CJEC, um, Coalition for Just and Equitable California, at CJEC Official on Instagram. Go follow us right now at CJEC Official on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, on TikTok, www.cjecofficial.org. That's www.cjecofficial.org. Sign up for our free California monthly newsletter. Sign up for our free California reparations text messages. Get on our volunteer list. Um, and official at gmail.com if you want to talk to us more directly. Thank you, Brother Chris. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you here, and we look forward to having you back again uh, with a little bit more time to dig in even deeper. Um, yes, sir. <laughs> go out there and get That's that right. bag for us. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> All right. uh, I, I just want to say I believe on behalf of both uh, Yusuf and I, we are very grateful that you were here today. And uh, we sure. appreciate your time. Thank brother. you. Do the damn thing. Thank you. All right. Um, we're going to get into our final segment now. Uh, first, going to thank our sponsors, of course, and then we're going to end it off bridging the gap segment. We may go about a minute or two over our allotted time limit. If that's the case, just call in at 515-605-9814, 515-605-9814, so you can listen to the broadcast in its entirety, or you can catch it on the rebroadcast when it's available for replay in about an hour or so. All right. Um, Yusuf, has been a hell of a program, brother. Yeah, man. I wish we had more time because we were just getting warmed up. But it was it was really great. We hit all the points that we wanted to hit. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm pretty sure our listeners are very grateful for the past two weeks. Hearing about Juneteenth and reparations, because these are two very hot topics, especially – uh, these next coming weeks, we're going to hear a lot about both. So we got to put, you know, some proper information out there so they don't have to listen to what they heard on Fox News, you know, and hear all this misinformation that's going to come along with it. Uh, so my power just went out again. So, you know, there's that. But thankfully I was already prepared for it to possibly go out again. But we'll get into the closing uh, we want to thank our sponsors and partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, the Iron Wheel Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, SEMA Urge, that's Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, and the Abolished Slavery National Network. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, that's youtube.com slash abolition today, and our Facebook page, Abolition Today. There you can find all the news, information, 
and music you hear on this program. Follow us on Twitter at Abolition Today, the number one. Also follow Max and I, Parthas. He's uh, at Max Parthas on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram. Uh, you can find me at uh, UYU Hassan Bolden on Twitter. And on Facebook, Yusuf Hassan, and I think Yusuf Hassan Bolden on Instagram. We put out a lot of information. A couple of announcements. This uh, next Monday, June 19th, from 6 to 8 p.m. Central, in Slavery, Colorado, we'll celebrate the quote-unquote end of slavery in our nation. Join them for a panel discussion entitled Orange Collar Labor in Colorado with prominent faith and labor leaders, justice advocates, and the author of the new book, Orange Collar Labor, and learn how we can stand together to finish the abolition work our ancestors started. And also remember Tales from the Plantation Nation, hosted by Samuel Nathaniel Brown, airs every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific, right here on the Abolition Today platform. Our bridging the gap for today will be Max Parthas, reading Ida B. Wells speaking on the convict lease system in 1893. This is an excerpt from the book entitled The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition, the Afro-American's Contribution to Columbian Literature. We'll be back live next Sunday, June 18th, God willing, with another master class on with slavery abolition. Jordan. Remember, yes, remember, Louisiana State Representative Edmund Jordan will be our guest, so tune in for that. He's going to give us the full rundown of everything that went down with HB 211 in Louisiana. So until next week, think about abolition today. Thank you to all of our callers, all our new listeners and new callers. Thanks to Brother Chris for stopping by and dropping some knowledge about reparations on us. Thanks to you, Brother Max. Thank me. That sounds crazy, but peace and blessings to you all. Peace. Abolition. 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 The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition by Ida B. Wells, 1862-1931, read by Max Parkers. Chapter 3, The Convict Lease System. The Convict Lease System and lynch law are twin infamies which flourish hand in hand in many of the United States. They are the two great outgrowths and results of the class legislation under which our people suffer today. Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Nebraska, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Washington claim to be too poor to maintain state convicts within prison walls. Hence, the convicts are leased out to work for railroad contractors, mining companies, and those who farm large plantations. These companies assume charge of the convicts, work them as cheap labor, and pay the states a handsome revenue for their labor. Nine-tenths of these convicts are Negroes. There are two reasons for this. One, the religious, moral, and philanthropic forces of the country, all the agencies which tend to uplift and reclaim the degraded and ignorant, are in the hands of the Anglo-Saxon. Not only has very little effort been made by these forces to reclaim the Negro from the ignorance, immorality, and shiftlessness with which he is charged, 
but he has always been and is now rigidly excluded from the enjoyment of these elevating influences towards which he felt voluntarily drawn. In communities where Negro population is largest and these counteracting influences most needed, the doors of the churches, schools, concert halls, lecture rooms, young men's Christian associations, and women's Christian temperance unions have always been and are now closed to the Negro who enters on his own responsibility. Only as a servant or inferior being placed in one corner is he admitted. The white Christian and moral influences have not only done little to prevent the Negro from becoming a criminal, but they have deliberately shut him out of everything which tends to make for a good citizenship. To have Negro blood in the veins makes one unworthy of consideration, a social outcast, a leper even in the church. Two Negro Baptist ministers, Reverend John Frank, the pastor of the largest colored church in Louisville, Kentucky, and Reverend C.H. Parrish, president of the Eckstein Northern University at Cane Springs, Kentucky, were in the city of Nashville, Tennessee, in May when the Southern Baptist Convention was in session. They visited the meeting and took seats in the body of the church. At the request of the association, a policeman was called and escorted these men out because they would not take the seats set apart for colored persons in the back part of the tabernacle. Both these men are scholarly of good moral character and members of the Baptist denomination, but they were Negroes, and that eclipsed everything else. This spirit is even more rampant in the more remote, densely populated plantation districts. The Negro is shut out and ignored, left to grow up in ignorance and vice. Only in the gambling dens and saloons does he meet any sort of welcome. What wonder that he falls into crime? Two, the second reason our race furnishes so large a share of the convicts is that the judges, juries, and other officials of the courts are white men who share these prejudices. They also make the laws. It is wholly in their power to extend clemency to white criminals and mete out severe punishment to black criminals for the same or lesser crimes. The Negro criminals are mostly ignorant, poor, and friendless possessing neither money to employ lawyers nor influential friends. They are sentenced in large numbers to long terms of imprisonment for petty crimes. The People's Advocate, a Negro journal of Atlanta, Georgia, has the following observation on the prison showing of that state for 1892. Quote, unquote, it is an astounding fact that 90% of the state's convicts are colored. 194 white males and two white females, 1,710 colored males and 44 colored females. Is it possible that Georgia is so prejudiced that she won't convict her white lawbreakers? Yes, it is just so, but we hope for a better day. George W. Cable, author of The Grandissimes, Dr. Sevier, etc., in a paper on the convict lease system, read before prison congress in Kentucky, says, In the Georgia Penitentiary, in 1880, in a total of nearly 1,200 convicts, only 22 prisoners were serving as low a term as one year, only 52 others as low as two years, only 76 others as low a term as three years, while those who were under sentences of 10 years 
and over number 538. Although 10 years, as the roles show, is the utmost length of time that a convict can be expected to remain alive in the Georgia penitentiary. Six men were under sentence for a simple assault and battle, mere fisticuffs. One of two years, two of five years, and one of six years, one of seven, and one of eight. For larceny, three men were serving under sentences of 20 years. Five were sentenced each for 15 years, one for 14 years, six for 12 years, 35 for 10 years, and 172 from one year up to nine years. In other words, a large majority of these 1,200 convicts had, for simple stealing, without breaking in or violence, been virtually condemned to be worked and misused to death. One man was under a 20-year sentence for hog stealing. Twelve men were sentenced to the South Carolina Penitentiary on no other finding but a misdemeanor commonly atoned for by a fine of a few dollars, and which thousands of the state's inhabitants, white, are constantly committing with impunity. The carrying of concealed weapons. Fifteen others were sentenced for mere assault and battery. In Louisiana, a man was sentenced to the penitentiary for 12 months for stealing $5 worth of gunny sacks. Out of 2,378 convicts in the Texas prison in 1882, only two were under sentence of less than two years length, and 509 of these were under 20 years of age. Mississippi's penitentiary role for the same year showed 70 convicts between the ages of 12 and 18 years of age serving long terms. Tennessee showed 12 boys under 18 years of age under sentences of more than a year. And the North Carolina penitentiary had 234 convicts under 20 years of age serving long terms. Mr. Cable goes on to say in another part of his admirable paper, quote, unquote, in the Georgia convict force, only 15 were whites among 215 who were under sentences of more than 10 years. What is true of Georgia is true of the convict lease system everywhere. The details of vice, cruelty, and death thus fostered by states whose treasuries are enriched thereby equals anything from Siberia. Men, women, and children are herded together like cattle in the filthiest quarters and chained together while at work. The Chicago Interocean recently printed an interview with a young colored woman who was sent six months to the convict farm in Mississippi for fighting. The costs, etc. lengthened the time to 18 months. During her imprisonment, she gave birth to two children, but lost the first one from premature confinement caused by being tied up by the thumbs and punished for failure to do a full day's work. She and other women testified that they were forced to criminal intimacy with the guards and cook to get food to eat.
Abolition. Abolition. If we'd known you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own fucking cotton.